Hello, this is a pre-pod message to say that we are doing a live show at this year's London Podcast Festival on the 18th of September, which includes a whole film screening and podcast recording with a fantastic special guest. What are we showing? Good question. We'll be screening 1991's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, 88 minutes long, a rare theatrical screening. Cowabunga! Who selected the film? Why, it was Dan Schreiber, top comedian, writer and producer. He's one of the hosts of the Ace QI podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. Where and when is this happening? It's at the London Podcast Festival 2022 at King's Place. The film starts at midday on Sunday the 18th of September. Tickets, which include both the film screening and the podcast recording, are on sale now via the King's Place website. Read our show notes. For the link. Hello and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90-minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by writer and fellow podcaster, John Ronson. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, Sam. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining us and, uh, and and dialing in from New York. Yeah, I am. It's very nice for you to invite me. I hope people don't think my choice is too solipsistic. Let's see. I don't think they will. I think it'll be uh, a unique, unique perspective on a film, which is uh, something we haven't really had on the show. We've had a, you know, a couple of people maybe just as their films come out, but yeah, to sort of go down memory lane. I think that's a very unique angle. And uh, I think the first time we spoke was about uh, a different film that you uh, you made called Stanley Kubrick's Boxes, which was an incredible forty eight minutes long. Now that's a runtime. Yeah, actually, there's another version of the film that's about 10 or 15 minutes longer. The bloated, extended... Ah, no, no, it's still under 90 minutes. Lovely. Actually, it is slightly bloated. We added one thing that that bloated it a little and probably we shouldn't have added. Watching the 48-minute version's fine, I'd say. I guess that was originally a TV project, which is why it was at runtime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I'll tell you how that project came about. It's an interesting story. Uh, in, right when I started my career in the, I don't know, early 90s, I guess, uh, I made a, the very first thing I ever made was a, was a Radio 4 documentary called Hotel Auschwitz. And it was about the marketing of the concentration camp. I always remember the BBC started it by saying, and now a very personal <laughs> they, the BBC always say personal as code for if you don't like it, it's, not, it's nothing to do with us. Uh, <laughs> so it was, you know, I was a very young man and I was making a documentary about the marketing of Auschwitz, about uh, the different, the battles between the different uh, travel agencies. It's, it was, uh, and it was very good. It was a really good start to my career. After it aired, I got a phone call from this posh sounding man called Tony and he said, my, my employer would like a copy of your documentary. He's heard some good things about it. And I said, who's your employer? And he said, I'm afraid I can't tell you. And I said, oh, go on. And that <laughs> broke him. He, he said, OK, it's Stanley Kubrick. Uh, so, I, so I sent the tape off and daydreamed. Actually, I had a weird daydream that Stanley Kubrick loved it so much. He wanted, me, he wanted like to collaborate 
with me on it and I said I didn't think I'd make a very good screenwriter so actually even in my daydream I was like turning turning the job down anyway then a couple of years passed and, and he died and and then a couple of years after that Tony called again and Tony turned out to be Tony Fruin who was one of Kubrick's two main personal assistants over the years the other one being Leon Vitale and um, Tony said do you want to come up for lunch so I went up to the Kubrick house for lunch and it was just as Kubrick had left it. Uh, it looked like the Inland Revenue had taken it over. There was this huge house and out of just boxes everywhere, boxes, filing cabinets, printers, like no busts or floral displays. Where there should have been a bust, there was just a pile of boxes. So I said to Tony, what was in the boxes? Well, he took me into one room, which is just full of books, this is going to be too long a story, right? Because we're talking... But will I tell you this quickly? He took me into one room. It was full of books. And I said, is this the library? And he said, look closer at the books. And I looked closer. And I turned to him with my eyes wide and said, every book in this room is about Napoleon. <laughs> and he said, yeah. It was their Napoleon research room. Uh, wow. Anyway, so I said, what's in, what's, what's in the boxes? He said, everything. So when I went home... I, I said, I told my wife and she said, you, you should ask them if you can look through the boxes. You can like, I don't know, make a documentary or something. So, so I ended up doing it. So the idea was, you know, can I get to know Kubrick through the stuff he left behind in boxes? I think a lot of, lot of listeners will know you maybe from your writing, uh, you know, many uh, you know, published books out there. But it feels like maybe in recent years, podcasts is where you've spent the most of your, your working life. Yeah, uh, I do like the fact that podcasting is, remains like the Wild West of narrative nonfiction storytelling. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. I'm actually going through a process at the moment. I'm finishing off another, another one for Audible. You know, the editor, actually, she's great. She's, like, giving great notes. But once in a while, she's giving a note that's sort of flattening my idiosyncratic style. And I just say, like, no. Like, you know, if yeah. I wanted to... And I think, like, if I wanted to flatten my style, I'd, you know, I'd be doing it for The New Yorker or, you know, you know New York Times magazine or something. You know, there's, there's places left where you can really be allowed to experiment, and Audible is one of those places. In not you know too big a gap we've had some major series um like the butterfly effect and things fell apart and uh relating to butterfly effect the last days of august these are all like really you know major projects yeah and i'm doing one more which is which is i'm, a, I'm about to finish um i probably shouldn't say what it's called because it hasn't been like announced yet and then i'll probably make a second season of things fell apart for the bbc but then i think my podcasting days are done or certainly temporarily, and I'm going to get back into into writing books. I, I, I value the, the two just as much. I, I really think of books as like, you know, my children, and, and I don't want there to be a less good child out there in the world. I don't want to go on stage and talk about a book that I don't love as much as the psychopath test or say you've been publicly shamed. So sometimes if I've got an idea that I really love... But I just fear slightly that it's not, it's just it wouldn't work as a, as a book, then I'll, I'll do it as a podcast. And, mm. you know, I'd say the butterfly effect and things fell apart sort of fall into that category. Like, I really, really love them, but they felt more like podcasts than books to me. People respond differently, probably, to if you say you're doing something for a podcast to for a book and the expectations are different. And I, I feel like when when someone brings a podcast project to life which is as well researched and you know as well put together as uh, you know things like uh, butterfly effect last days of august 
you know, it's like it, it sort of just goes to show what you can do with the medium. Like we're pushing podcasts forward still. I, absolutely. And, you know, and sort of play, playing around with narrative, too. I mean, the butterfly effect is a it's quite it's got quite an odd narrative. It's a it's a butterfly effect story. So the, the, the pebble thrown in the pond. I'm not mixing my metaphors here because that implies ripple effect. Uh, the butterfly flapping its wings is this Belgium kid called Fabian coming up with the idea of giving the world YouTube for porn, which was Pornhub. And the ripples or the flap of the butterfly wings or whatever, you know, the, is, is everything that happened as a result. And it just goes to so many interesting uh, uh, different corners. So yeah, doing, doing a narrative that's entirely following a butterfly effect. I think you probably could do that in a book. I doubt you could do it in any other form other than a book and a podcast. Mm. But they're, they're just as much work and, you know, just as intensive. So I, I, I value them as much as I do the books. I but saying all that, I'm looking forward to getting back to writing a book. In, in addition to the great writing and, and the podcast I've been enjoying, uh, your name is on so many credits of movies that I love and one that really stuck with me is Okja the uh, Bong Joon-ho film that you actually you co-wrote with Bong Joon-ho and uh, yeah I think it got a big rollout at Netflix but it also played big film festivals like Cannes like this was a big film oh yeah it was in competition at Cannes you know the the fact is is that when you work with somebody like Bong Joon-ho it's it's you know you are in service to him it's his film and and with Okja by the time you know he contacted me and asked me to you know, to work on it, he'd written the first draft. The whole the plot was there. There were some characters who were kind of quite blank. So my job was simply to to give the Animal Liberation Front characters and to give Tilda and Jake Gyllenhaal's characters, you know, character. So it's not that much, to be honest. It's not. Frank is different. Frank, Frank, I think, was kind of wrenched from my soul. But Okja was, was wrenched from director Bong's soul, not, not mine. How did that collaboration come about, though? It's uh, on, on paper. I'm like, how are these two worlds colliding? <laughs> like, this is incredible. Apparently, it turned out that Frank um, was, was successful in, you know, the film Frank was successful in South Korea. So, so Bong loved it, was a huge fan of it. His producer, Duho, for a while, it was, Frank was his avatar. That's how much he loved it. And so when he was looking, my, my guess, although he never said this to me, is that the Animal Liberation Front in Okja, this kind of band of sort of young, heroic, but also erratic band, were quite similar to the people in Frank. So I think that's why he thought I might be the right person to, to work on it. Well, I can sort of see that. So a ragtag uh, group of Animal Liberation Front. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was that, that ragtag thing he wanted. But... I've always been a little odd talking about it because, you know, Okja's his film. You know, his films are his films. When I rewatched Frank a couple of weeks ago, I, I was surprised at how, you know, how much it was sort of was dredged from the swamp that is my inner life. <laughs> like, it felt very like, like it really spoke to, to me, that film, actually, and in ways that I don't think anybody else necessarily watching it would 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 realize my biggest fears you know like john is such an asshole in that film he's so you know and and so you know all of the fears of like the worst version of me i i kind of filtered into into john in that film 
think that's a, a good segue to jump into today's film. So we reached out to you, John, and said, you know, would you like to pick an under 90 minute movie? And, uh, you know, Frank's in the name of this episode. But was Frank your first pick? Did you have any other sort of also rands? Uh, no, Frank was my first pick. The reason why was because lately, like when Frank came out, you know, it got, it got really good reviews. People really liked it. Some people loved it, but it didn't like go crazy. But then in, in the subsequent years, it still hasn't gone crazy. There's been a number of recent podcasts um, called things like, you know, great films that you've never heard of, or why <laughs> why was this film an, unex- an unexpected commercial bomb? <laughs> and sometimes they choose <laughs> Frank. And, uh, and, and I listen to them, and they're so passionate. Like, this is one of the greatest films I've ever seen, and it should be more popular. And also, maybe a couple of times a year, I'll get somebody telling me that Frank is like, Frank changed their life. It's their favourite film ever. So I think, I think Frank deserves more of a chance still and to be rediscovered. And that's why I wanted to talk about Frank. Frank is the hilarious offbeat comedy about a young wannabe musician, John, who finds himself out of his depth when he joins an avant-garde pop band led by Frank, a mysterious musical genius who hides himself inside a large fake head and the terrifying Clara. Directed by Lenny Abramson, written by John Ronson and Peter Strawn, Frank is an uproarious road trip of musical mayhem. Uh, yeah, it's a hard film, you know, it's it's not the easiest film to market, I would say. No, no, I totally uh, agree with that. I think the artwork, you know, maybe just like the imagery is the best way to sell it because then you, you know, it's so intriguing. You want to see that film. Yeah. I wonder, like, if I could live life over again, not that by the time it gets to a film's marketing, anybody listens to the screenwriter, like the screenwriting job was so long before the marketing that, you know, you've you're, you're kind of forgotten, as it should be. But were I in the marketing meetings, I sometimes I wondered, maybe maybe the poster should have been like a close-up of a, of a feature of Frank's head, like just, just the eye or something. Because, you know, as John says in the film, you know, what goes on, inside that head, inside that head. Uh, you know, maybe to just see a little detail from the head rather than the whole head would would have would have helped with the kind of mystery aspect of the film. That sort of leads into the uh, the end credits, not to skip over the whole movie, but the end credits are Frank's features, you know, sort of taken apart and it's really lovely animated credits. And my God, that last song, I Love You All, that uh, Stephen Remnick's wrote is just wonderful. As you sort of alluded to, a very personal film. It'd be good to, I guess, just sort of set this project up for the listeners if they if they haven't seen the film yet or they don't know, you know, sort of the backstory. When did you have the idea to, to write this film and, and where did you start? Right. Well, it, it actually was Peter Strawn's idea. Uh, what happened was Peter Strawn was writing the screenplay for my book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. And at the same time, he didn't want it, he didn't want, it was funny, I remember like walking into a coffee shop while he was in the middle of writing the screenplay and, and, he, and he saw me walk in and he looked like a ghost had walked in, like the blood drained from his face, like the last thing you want when you're adapting someone's work is to have them walk in. Uh, so, uh, so he was like separate off adapting the many stare at goats and at the same time, 
I was in the park with my son in Islington and, and my phone rang and it was Frank Sidebottom. He went, you know, hello. And I said, Frank? He said, yes. I said, Frank, it's been so long. We hadn't spoken in like 20 years. And he went, oh, I know, it's been a long time. And I said, how are you? I was feeling like moved. I was like, you know, how are you? Oh, very well, actually. And I said, finally said, Frank, will you put Chris on? <laughs> he went, hold on a minute. And he went, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, hello, John. <laughs> Frank and Chris are the same person, but uh, you, you had to address him as Frank and ask for Chris to be put on. So Chris explained that um, Frank Sidebottom had gone into retirement some years earlier, maybe 15, 20 years earlier. I'd been in Frank Sidebottom's band in the late 80s for about two or three years. And Frank was coming out of retirement. He wanted to come back. And I was thinking, I know what he's going to say. It's going to be like the Blues Brothers. He wants me to like rejoin the band. <laughs> and I was all ready to say like, you know, yes. But instead, <laughs> instead he said, would you write something maybe in The Guardian? Uh, just a, your memory of, you know, being in the band to help me with my comeback. So I went, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Being asked to join the band would have been so much better. Uh, but So I wrote a 2,000-word story in The Guardian, like three days. I knocked it off. Like, you, it takes me months to write things, but this one I just knocked off in like, maybe two days. And, and, the, and I had a kind of Alice in Wonderland feel to it, this boy from the suburbs being plucked out of obscurity to join a band whose singer wears a big fake head that he doesn't take off. Uh, so uh, Peter... Strawn, you know, who I was sort of, you know, working with from a distance, read it and said that he had always had this idea to make a film about what what would it be like if somebody like Captain Beefheart, like an avant-garde musician, had been around 20 years earlier. So Captain Beefheart in the 50s, what would that have been like? He said, he said, he always had an idea to write a film like that. He said, but your idea is better. And I... <laughs> And I thought, I have no idea what my idea is. So I, I, obviously I didn't say anything, but, but it turned out that what he meant by my idea was a kid joins a band whose singer wears a big fake head and he never takes off. So I said, yeah, I'd love to collaborate with you on that. So so we did. We collaborated for several years. And when when we went to Puerto Rico to watch The Menace at Goats being filmed, we did a whole chunk of writing, you know, by the pool at the hotel and... And that's how it started. Oh, wow. So I didn't realize it's such a long writing process. So, so was that a sort of a case of you know, writing a draft and sending it to Peter, Peter writing a draft, sending it back to you? What was the process like? That was the process, except <laughs> I would write a draft and send it to Peter. And then several months would pass because Peter was, and then he'd send the draft back to me, which is part of the reason why it took so long. Because Peter was and remains an incredibly in-demand screenwriter because he's a screenwriting genius you know he wrote you know got nominated for an oscar for tinker taylor soldier spy he wrote wolf hall which is you know magnificent adaptation so yeah so peter was very busy so i so that's that's part of the reason why it took so long but yeah i'd write 15 pages 20 pages something like that hit a wall send it to peter and then you know a few months later I'd get his version back and, and that's how it went for for a number of years until it got to a stage where uh, there was a great thing at Film 4 at the time. Um, the development person at Film 4 was Catherine Butler. And so for the first few meetings, me and Peter would go in and talk to Catherine. 
And then at one meeting, Catherine said, um, Tessa will be joining us. And I, and I didn't realise, but that was code for, for basically your film's going to happen. Like when Tessa, Tessa Ross, who was the head of film for at the time, when Tessa joins you, that's when you know that they're going to take this seriously. So uh, that was the moment we knew the film had a chance of getting made when, when Tessa came into one of the meetings. Can I ask you something? Sure. Why do you wear that? You think it's weird? Kinda. Well, normal faces are weird too, you know? The way they're smooth, 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 and then, you know, all bumpy and holes. I mean, what are eyes like? It's like a science fiction movie. Don't get me started on lips. Like the edges of a very serious wound. That's true. But your head is still sort of intimidating. Well, underneath I'm giving you a welcoming smile. Would it help if I said my facial expressions out loud? Well, maybe. Welcoming smile. Delighted look. I loved the uh, the Guardian piece, and and there's a sort of an ebook version of of the Frank story, which is maybe a bit longer than than that piece. So like really interesting insight for from your you know real life experience. But what was with the film? You know, it's it's in, set in present day. It's been, I guess, you know, updated and changed. You know, what inspired taking it away from you know more of a biographical piece and 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 making the piece we see? I think I think two things uh, were were the, sort of initiated. The idea that it wasn't going to be a straight Frank Sidebottom biopic. In fact, there was a few things. Firstly, Chris, one of the first things Chris said to me when I said that I wanted to try and do this was he didn't want to be a character in the film. Like he was very happy for Frank Sidebottom to be a character in the film, but he didn't want Chris Seavey to be a character in the film. So there was that. Also, Peter always really loved the story of how Captain Beefheart, when he was making Trout Mask Replica, forced his band to to live in a house in the middle of nowhere and just, you know, feed them a handful of grains a day. <laughs> the sort of cult thing going on in this house. They must have all been like starving and they were there for like a couple of years. So so Peter thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to kind of add add that to the story? So then it's slow and I was an enormous fan and still am of the documentary The Devil and Daniel Johnson. Frank and the devil and Daniel Johnson should be on a double bill somewhere because you can really see how how inspired I was by that documentary. So so quite quickly, it became not a Frank Sidebottom story, but but a story about a sort of tribute to outsider artists who were just too odd to make it in the mainstream. Do you see a lot of that action when they uh, the band go to a house to record their album and then it ends up being years and and I love I love the staging and, and the set design and you know all of the sort of weird there's often like quite quick cutaways to you know experimental sounds being recorded you know people banging sticks in a forest or running around a field and stuff yeah it's funny I just remembered as you said that originally so it ended up being in Ireland uh, the house where they where they all lived for a few years. Uh, but originally it was Sweden because we liked the idea of it being kind of fairy tale like. And the point is, John, the character that you're based on me, is the only person in the band who doesn't have any talent. So we wanted to like represent John's just paucity of talent. Uh, um, he, he was writing a diary in, in one of the drafts when it was in Sweden. I just remembered this. He's writing like a diary and he's like, Vetno. That was the name of the, the house. Vetno, Sweden. And then John looks out the window and thinks, and it's like snowing. 
and John writes, snowing. <laughs> I just that's what really made me laugh because John could only write about things that are happening right in front of him, whereas Frank has enormous talent where he can create things from nothing. That performance from Donald Gleeson is, is is great, and it was one of his sort of earlier performances. Now he's a you know household name, and he's been in Star Wars and stuff. But this was sort of at the beginning of the Donald Gleeson hype train, and, and yeah, such a such a good performance because you know, you know to say John isn't a likable character in in the in the film. And when I was rewatching this film with my wife, you know, we were like, oh, John, John, <laughs> you know. What I love uh, is how John is a he's a villain who doesn't know he's a villain. As is indeed most villains don't, right? John joins the band with the best of intentions. And in fact, he's invited to join the band. Frank invited him. People keep telling him that he was like he's in the band uninvited. And he's like, no, Frank, inv- <laughs> Frank invited him. Uh, but Clara, Clara says he's just 10 fingers being told which keys to play, just 10 little bits of skin and bone. That's all John is to Clara, is just 10 fingers being told where to go. I love that uh, that, that line and, and Maggie Gyllenhaal's delivery as well, that she's she's so well cast as, as, as Clara. She really is. Clara was based on, um, well, the bass player in the Frank Sidebottom band had an unaccountable dislike of me, mystifying dislike of me. But also, Clara, so Clara was partly based on him and partly based on Klaus Kinski, uh, and the relationship between uh, Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog. So that's another thing that came into Frank. In a way, Frank is Werner Herzog and Clara is Klaus Kinski. It's nice when there's an ensemble cast, uh, as, as there is in Frank, it's, it's sort of nice to have everyone to have those like, you know, shifting plates of relationships. And, you know, if John bounces over here, he knows that's the relationship with Frank. And if he's here, it's with Clara. And if it's with the the, the drummer and, you know, the, the sort of less prominent members, they've got a quite a frosty relationship as well. It's it's interesting to see him, you know, pinball between these people in that house, especially. You know, the drummer, Carla Zah, in, in the film is, um, she's got an incredible band called Autolux. And she's also Jack White's drummer. And just last night, by coincidence, I was watching a Jack White concert film and there, there she was banging away i did wonder about you know because like you know there's lots of scenes of people playing music in the film and some are easier to fake than others none of it's faked none of it's faked apparently i wasn't there on the set but they always said that none of it was faked it was the, the, the musicians played live with no overdubs the whole time this film was released in 2014 and a big part of the story is uh, is Donald's character's relationship with social media, and we see tweets on screen, which I think at the time maybe it was the first time I'd sort of seen social media represented uh, in that way. I think we, I'm sure there was other films, but my memory says that we came out the same time as this film called Chef. John Favreau, Robert Downey Jr., and, and uh, Scarlett Johansson. I think. Okay, right, yeah. So the two films came out at roughly the same time, and they both featured tweets, and I think. To my knowledge, Frank and and Chef were the first two films that featured Twitter. Kind of knew right away, you know, it was just the shallowest. John is just, he's so banal, you know, he's just tweeting banalities all the time about what he's having for lunch. And, but then he starts to use Twitter as a weapon, like a secret weapon to get, to get Frank's band big. Uh, he starts like secretly, he's like secretly filming their rehearsals and putting it on Twitter. So the band don't know that John is actually using Twitter uh, in that way. So Twitter, Twitter's a villain in the film all, all the way, I think. It does feel quite cruel, you know, just sort of making these 
people as characters, non-consenting people into these characters for other people to enjoy. And then I, you know, you sort of think about your work with So You've Been Publicly Shamed and, and how social media is a big part uh, of that. And, and it's probably maybe some truth, but also a bit of galaxy brain thought from my side, <laughs> you know, connecting dots. Yeah, no, no, I think it, 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 I was writing, I'd started writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed and I was still writing Frank with Peter. So, so yeah, some of those themes would have, would have gone in for that reason. Towards the end of Frank... Somebody spots John, recognizes him from social media, and basically, you know, tells John that he loves his social media presence. It's hilarious. All those, you know, freaks in the band are just so hilarious. And realizes that, you know, John, John has turned the members of the band into a sort of Twitter freak show that people are just laughing at. Hello listeners, your host Sam here. I wanted to say that we now have a Ko-fi page. If you love listening to the podcast, you can now support us for as little as £3. That's right, just £3. Your one-off donation will really help us keep doing what we're doing. Visit ko-fi.com slash 90minfilmfest. That's ko-fi.com slash 90minfilmfest. And all for the price of a posh coffee. Be more like Sean, who donated just the other day. Thanks, Sean. It was really lovely to read your message. But don't worry at all if you can't. You can still support the show by leaving a rating or review on your podcast listening app. Those are hugely important as they help others find the pod. Thanks, gang. Back to the show. The film is beautifully 90 minutes long. When you were writing the script, do you have any sense of how long this film's going to be? Was there a, you know, a, a, a much longer version at one point, or did you did it sort of always hover around, you know, that sort of length from from what you were writing? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe a little bit longer. For a while, there was lots of flashbacks and fables before Lenny, the director, got got involved. We wrote a lot of fables, like Frank's origin story. Because uh, John's like trying to find out, you know, where does Frank come from? And there's all these like fables about him coming from, you know, the mountains of the Pacific Northwest. And like his first mask, he had heard his first mask was like an animal's face that he had to kill. And then he had to wear the animal's face over his own face. So he had all of these sort of, you know, mythic fables about Frank's origin story, all of which turned out, you know, to be bullshit. And Frank's family was very similar to John's family. So it's the sort of you know, one of the twists in the film. So so I think the film is quite a lot longer because of all of these scenes. But, you know, one of the very first things that Lenny asked was for us to just make it a an unfolding narrative without any without any, you know, flashbacks or fantasy sequences. We had, you know, a bunch of those things in the in the, in the early drafts. When you're just in the so your writing phase, anything is possible. And when you have the director come on board, I guess there's a, you know, a bit of a vision in terms of like, this is how we'll actually realise it and how it should be presented when we, we, we're filming. Yeah, but there's something, obviously there's something comforting about that. I like systems and processes, like I find them comforting. So, uh, so for somebody to come in and say, you know, if you want me to make this film, this is, this is how I would want it to be. That's, you know, for me, that's like comforting because otherwise it's just me and Peter, you know, just emailing each other. But the moment we really knew it was happening and, and in, F, in all three films that I've had some involvement with, it's been the same story. 
uh, it was when a, a like a star wanted to be involved. So the minute Michael Fassbender read a really early draft, and I don't know how he did. I mean, obviously somebody must have sent it to him, but I just heard out of the blue, oh, Michael Fassbender's read a draft and loves it and wants to play Frank. So then it all happened very quickly. And the same was the case with the Many State Goats when George Clooney said he wanted to be involved. It all happened very quickly after years of nothing happening. It's interesting for Michael Fassbender in this because, you know, the whole point of the character is you don't see Michael Fassbender <laughs> for a large part of the film. He, he joked when the film came out that it wasn't him under the head and he would just, but I can tell you, because I, I watched all the rushes and it was him and every, every scene is him, except for a couple of seconds when he gets hurt and they needed a stuntman. Michael Fassbender is one of the best actors working today and, and this film I think shows just how versatile he is because he I mean the vocals are great what we hear um, him do and him sing lovely singing voice and really suits the character but just his physical he's so funny how he walks around and his posture and his gait you know I, I love watching him as Frank. I, I think he's he's amazingly good in it just as you say the tiniest little change of of posture changes like the whole what you're imagining is going on underneath that head he can go from adorable to ominous with just the slightest change of you know of his hips or whatever does that so well we go on a quite a rich journey in in the film and it sort of pays off with frank going back to his his real house and, and seeing his parents i thought that scene was really heartbreaking and and it's such a great payoff to the film and a real I think it's only maybe five or six or seven minutes of the runtime but gives you such a great insight into you know the mystique that is Frank you know and, and that explanation seeing his parents who are so normal yeah and that was partly inspired by the devil and Daniel Johnson because Daniel Johnson's parents in that film are just so it's just so heartbreaking it's so heartbreaking what anybody who has somebody who's severely mentally ill in their family you know, has to has to go through, you know, to try and make everything okay. There's a line that I wrote for Frank's father that makes me tear up, you know, every time I see it, which is where, where he says, um, he made him his first, you know, I made him his first head. He said it was for a costume party. I did it even though I knew there wasn't any costume party. The idea of, like, giving in, you know, giving in to the irrationality. And then, you know, Frank's mother says, uh, it turns out the worst thing you can do is pander to it. But when you've got somebody who's really sick and they desperately need pandering to, you do it, and even though you know it's the worst thing to do. So that line is fraught with agony, I think. I made him his first head. He said it was for a costume party, but I made it even though I knew there wasn't any costume party. So it's it's really powerful, and and seeing the photos of young Frank, I think the photos have have him with his face obscured, like he's not sort of present in the photos, which is such a nice touch. And you know they had um, they had a kind of dilemma, which was that we needed Frank to be underwhelming without the head on, but it's Michael Fassbender, and he's not underwhelming. So how do you do it? And they did it by the way when you when you do finally see. Michael Fassbender in that scene, the way his body posture is and so on, like they, they sort of diminished him in, in a way that I thought was brilliant, like brilliantly done. 
because like how do you diminish Michael Fassbender, you know? But it, but it really worked. One of the most athletic and, and handsome stars uh, working today. But uh, yeah, I think it's the way he shot. You know, he's he's got his back to the camera almost for a lot of those, and you see his hairline from the the the, the head. You know, it's worn away at his scalp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's got like a line around his head where the where the where the head is been too tight and he's still drinking one of the you know how does frank eat with the mask on and and you you sort of see him in various situations sneaking food up there but uh even without the, the mask on he he always drinks soda from a, a large straw and michael fassbender's got his big straw still yeah i guess he's so yeah he's so used to he's so used to it yeah i really love that was a great bit of Back and forth between me and Peter, there's a scene on the ferry when they're on the way to Ireland and John's just joined the band. And and if my memory is right, like the way the dialogue unfolds was pretty much how the writing unfolded between me and Peter. Like I was John asking all of these questions, like, you know, because like me as the real John, like I want to know these things. Like, Like if somebody tells me a story, like I'm so annoying. If somebody tells me a story and like the story ends, I always say like, and what happened, what happened next? I know that the story's over. Like I've told you the story, but what did he do after that? Uh, anyway, so that the John and Frank is a little bit like that. He's like, well, how does he eat? And, and it's like I'm asking Peter all of these questions. Peter's like Scoot McNary's character, Don, and he's like answering them. And I'm like, well, how does he eat? Uh, he um, sucks uh, liquid food through a straw that he funnels up under the neckline. Uh, what kind of liquid food? Uh, Complan. Uh, he must have a very bushy beard. Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> I love that. And then finally Don says to John, like, you know, you're just going to have to go with this. Uh, and I thought that was a brilliant line because that's what we're saying to the audience, right? You're just going to have to go with this. Put your arms around me, fiddly digits, itchy bridges. Music is, is such a big part of the film. I was just wondering, what's in the script for the music scenes? I wonder, shall I just see if... I don't know if I've got the screenplay here in front of me. Um, I can tell you while I'm looking for the screenplay to see if I can figure out what I did right. Uh, hang on a sec, let me see if I can find it. Here we go. Frank, draft six. So the first time John joins the band, this is how we describe the music. John walks down the corridor and finds himself in a grimy dressing room. There's no one there. He looks around. On the table, there's a scratching stick with a very long curved arm. There's also some bottles of beer, one with an extremely long straw sticking out of it. Uh, Anyway, here we go. Um, Suddenly we hear a strange banging noise from inside the hall. A furious, this is what we write, a furious looking woman stands provocatively at the front of the stage eating a pear. She tosses it, none of this was in the film in the end. I'm not helping you here with this, am I? Um, I think what we said was, here we go, here we go. Okay. Then Frank lifts the mic he's holding and begins to sing. And it's one of the strangest sounds you could imagine. Beautiful and ridiculous at the same time. So that's what we said, beautiful and ridiculous at the same time. I tell you what, that's easy for a screenwriter to write, less easy for a composer to make work. In in my mind's eye, the music was going to be really difficult to listen to, like like the Shags or, you know, Daniel Johnson. 
And I do remember sitting at a meeting with Film 4 and saying that, like, I, I don't think we should make the music likeable. I think it should be, like, extremely difficult to listen to. And I do remember Tessa looking at me and saying, John, people are going to be going to a cinema to watch this film. <laughs> and I, I learned my lesson there. Tessa was right. And I think they pulled off, I mean, you know, an incredible act with, with, with this music. It starts off like very bizarre and odd. But, you know, as the movie progresses, the music does become, you know, more likable. And the final song of the film, I Love You All, is, is, a, is, a, is a song, you know, worthy of anyone you can, you know, worthy of, I don't know, blur. <laughs> I say that it's because tune, yeah, tune, I, I say that because Blur bought out a song subsequently which sounds extraordinarily like I Love You All to the extent <laughs> that I wonder whether they saw the film. The film was released eight years ago and, and you know you, you watched the film recently. What what do you remember about the film? How how do you sort of view this um with a bit of hindsight? I imagine, you know, going back to it, you know, your all sorts of memories will you know will, will come up when you actually see the, the film again. Yeah. My main surprise was was how, you know, as I said earlier, like wrenched for my soul that film was. Like that line I just talked about, about, you know, the head, like I made him his first one. And John's behaviour, John not being able to like make it in the world. He's just too awkward and irritating and uncomfortable in his own skin. And he doesn't have any talent. He f- things up and... You know, there's a lot of dark, I mean, you know, these are like some of my darkest thoughts. Like, if I go into a social situation, will I say the wrong thing and f*** everything up? Or, you know, if I'm dealing with somebody with a mental illness, will I do the wrong thing and f*** everything? You know, it's it's so, so, so my main thought when I watched it a month ago was actually a sense of surprise and satisfaction that, like, the pain it's, it's kind of authentic. Uh, it's really, and I was surprised that, like, God, I really got to a dark place there and put it out and splurged it out there. So that was my main thought watching it again. But something happened the other day that I should tell you about about a week ago. My, my son lives in Brooklyn and he was subletting to a, to a band, like quite a big band, like eight people, I think, or six people. Anyway, they were, and they stayed there for about a month and, uh, they were talking about movies about bands, and at one point, my son said, "Oh, uh, do, do you know? Do you know the movie Frank?" And the singer in the band, with a very serious face, said, uh, "Yes, I am aware of that film." And uh, Joel, my son, said, um, "Are you aware that uh, that my that my father wrote it?" And he said, "Yes, I've recently discovered that." And Joel said, um, <laughs> like, honestly, completely blank face. And Joel said, what, what did you think of it? And he said, not only is it the greatest film I've ever seen, but it has completely changed my life. And the reason why I have a band and we live communally is because of that film. And I just thought, wow. yeah, and I just thought, God, that's, that, A, that's great. And it's not the first time I've heard that. I mean, I haven't heard it that often, but I've probably heard it. 10 times people have told me that it's like the, a film that changed their life but also it made me so I was very flattered and thought it was like great but a little bit of me also thought like I wrote those scenes those communal scenes of the band like I you know I can't think of anything worse <laughs> and, 
<laughs> and inadvertently, it, it became like a sort of, you know, a sort of like a lifestyle for people. Like, I just wanted them to like, you know, bicker and have like a, you know, uncomfortable time. And it was tense and John didn't know what's going on and he didn't know the rules and, uh, you know, he was awkward. And so that's how I was like approaching the communal you know, life of the band. But then other people was, were watching it and thinking that, like, I want to live that life, the, the authenticity of it and so on. And of course, the authenticity is there. Like they create something beautiful uh, with this album. But anyway, that made me laugh. It does sound like the film's occupying, you know, this is it's a film about outsiders, but the film is occupying, you know, this sort of outsider word of mouth space now, where it's the word of mouth recommendations, which are why people are seeking it out and, and rewatching it. I think that's beginning to happen. And that's why when you asked me if I wanted to choose a film that was 90 minutes or less, I, I thought, well, I want to choose Frank. I know I co-wrote it. So some people might think it was a slightly uh, self, self-involved choice of film, but no, this is why I want, I, I, I feel that there's people out there who've never heard of the film and if they watch it, some of them, not all of them, and most won't, but some will think it's the greatest film they've ever seen and it will change their life. There's people out there who are ready for that. It's been so good to, to talk to you about the film and, and to sort of take a trip down memory lane uh, with you. Yeah, and then providing such a unique insight into uh, into a film. We've not had this on the podcast yet, you know, 90 or so episodes, not had something like this before. But, um, you know, we are a film festival. You know, the, the goal in our fictional capacity is to put this film on at a theatre. And I did wonder if you've got a, you know, sort of a dream setting to screen Frank if we were to get it back on the big screen somewhere. Well, well, I tell you what, a double bill of Frank and um, The Devil and Daniel Johnson is something that I would, I would love. You know, I live up in the countryside in in upstate New York at the moment in the Hudson Valley and opposite us our neighbour Christina's got a barn and I've been saying to her for a couple of years you know you should screen Frank in your barn we can invite the neighbours because you know so much of the film is set in the countryside and I think something like a barn in the middle of nowhere I think it was shown at Glastonbury I think the first if my memory serves anyway um I think I think in a in a country idol on a double bill with the devil and Daniel Johnson. I think that would be great. I think as my, my flourish as uh, someone involved in the film festival will be for a German family to come in halfway through and say, this is our barn. Uh, and also for all the drinks to have exceedingly long straws uh, at the uh, kiosk. <laughs> right. I would like that. Yeah, that's how it should be. That's how it should be. I think that's an excellent idea. Oh, well, that's great. That's how we're going to screen the film. And we, we've got a couple of really good music, you know, sort of adjacent films in our festival, Searching for Sugar Man. Uh, this is Spinal Tap. So I think it feels like it, you know, will occupy quite a nice space. Uh, I wonder if The Devil and Jan- Daniel Johnson is under 90 minutes. It feels like it might be. It does feel like it might be, I, but I, I don't know um, that it's the best film I've seen about mental illness. It's inc- if people haven't seen it, it's, it's just an extraordinary documentary about this kid, so talented as a teenager, gets on MTV, you know, when they come to Austin, I think it's Austin. Anyway, then he's he's in battle with his own brain. It's a heartbreaking moment when his, you know, former girlfriend says that she began to realise that there was something terribly wrong with him. I second that recommendation. And, and I, I think, yeah, watching that and Frank back to back would be fascinating. So let's make this double bill happen, whether it's in real life or it's what viewers do at home, uh, you know, in front of the tellies. Well, I'd prefer real life. I'd come. We could do it. I'm coming to Britain again at the end of November. We could do it then. Am I, uh, am I cornering you? 
No, I think that's uh, you know, I mean, in in terms of uh, in terms of cinemas, I've got I got access to a lot of cinema screens. You shouldn't do a barn at the end of November, right? It would have to be an indoor. No, I think we'd have to go fully, yeah, fully for a, a bricks and mortar purpose built cinema uh, with uh, some heating, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay, well, that's uh, yeah, we'll watch this space. Could be something fun for for future. Thank you uh, so much for talking to us, John. It's been uh, it's been a blast to, to see you and, and to chat, Frank. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I hope I hope if one person listening to this decides to see the film and really loves it, then then that's that was my ambition. The nice thing about Frank is it is you know, readily available. It's on. I checked before this. It's on lots of streaming services, so it's uh, it's not one you need to you know track down on eBay or anything. You know, this is an easy to find movie, and, and I hope more people watch it. I hope so too. I hope so too. Beautifully shot, too. Beautiful, deep. You know, beautiful DP work. Incredible composition from Stephen Remnicks. It's just everyone involved in that film just did such a good job. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. Lipstick, kiss me, lipstick, ring, gold.